0: Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of Analysis and Political Commentary from the North. In this episode, in a week where 148 Tory MPs voted that they had no confidence in Boris Johnson, we'll speak to two Northern Conservatives who came to Parliament in the 2019 general election who did back the Prime Minister. As the levelling up bill returns to the Commons, Jacob Young, the MP for Redcar on Teesside, tells Dan O'Donoghue how he believes Mr Johnson's flagship domestic agenda remains the priority of everyone in government.
1: Well, I, I think levelling up isn't, it is more than a one-man mission. You know, I think uh, all of us, um, there's, a, there's a saying, you know, that, that all, all of the government's ministers are levelling up ministers. And I, I consider myself a levelling up MP because, you know, it's, it's, it's all of our mission to ensure that uh, prosperity um, is spread evenly across the United Kingdom. But our first guest today wants us to consider the question
0: how much does sport contribute to the North's towns, cities, and communities? Next week, the Northern Culture All Party Parliamentary Group launches an inquiry into just this subject on the back of its recent look into how Northern culture could contribute to the levelling up agenda. As Brian Green writes in the book Northerners, The North did not invent major sports such as cricket, football and rugby, but it can fairly claim to have turned them into professional spectator sports from the 19th century onwards. The region now boasts some of the world's best-known sporting powerhouses, but also hundreds, if not thousands, of smaller sports clubs which form a vital part of the communities they represent. James Daly, the Conservative MP for Bury North, knows better than most the importance of these local institutions. His local football club, Bury, were expelled from the Football League and put into administration in 2020. Here he is talking about it in the Commons earlier this year.
2: My Right Honourable friend from mid Derbyshire said during her uh, excellent contribution that this could happen to anybody if it happened to Derby. Well, it did. It happened to Bury Football Club. And when it happened to Bury Football Club, the fans paid the price. It was the fault of the owners and it was not the fault of the fans. Now. When that process happened, and I, as a number of people on the front bench know, I was intimately involved in that, the English Football League did not care. They did not care about any of the thousands of fans of Berry Football Club who were impacted by their decision to expel Berry Football Club from the league. This is not the local branch of Tesco we're talking about. Football clubs are engines for social and economic good. They are the history and heartbeat of, of communities. And I don't have the words to describe the impact upon thousands of people in my constituency of this, of my very football club disappearing.
0: And he's the co-chair of the Northern Culture APPG, which is launching the Question of Sports Inquiry. So, James, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Glad to be here. Could you just take us through the reason that you and others have launched this report and what you're hoping to uncover
2: Well, I think the the story of Berry Football Club perhaps underpins the reasons that we're looking into and looking into the question of sport. And in many ways, this is not just an issue, it's an issue throughout the country, but I think the story of Berry uh, has highlighted what sport brings to local communities. Now, one of the things when we look at football as one of these sports is that the football is not the Premier League, as as sometimes the the media and the general viewpoint regarding football uh, would like us to believe. Football is um, something that touches the lives of many, many people in towns, villages throughout the north of England. Um, and I'll just start off with a small example that I'm, a, I'm actually Huddersfield town season ticket holder. I'm from Huddersfield. I was lucky enough to marry a very lady, hence the reason why I'm the MP for Berry and being there for 10 years. But I was down at Wembley, uh, was it last week or the week before, for the championship final? Now, if we'd beat Nottingham Forest... The town of Huddersfield next season will probably have had an economic boost with Premier League football coming into it of, I would think, tens of millions of pounds at the very least. Probably probably a lot more in respect to that. And if you then take the situation of Bury where I'm a Member of Parliament, Bury was kicked out of the league. we we'll can have a long, long discussion about that. But the, the sheer economic impact of that on the town of Bury... It hasn't been quantified yet, but it's into the millions of pounds. Every other week, You know, hundreds upon hundreds of people, you know, the total crowd was three, four, five thousand 5,000 going into the centre of Bury, going to local shops, um, supporting the club, supporting jobs, supporting everything, and suddenly it's taken away. Bang, as a result of that. So the case for sport and football, we can get into the sports as well, as important sectors of the economy in northern towns I think is absolutely clear, but the, the question of Barry went further than that, and and I don't want to get into the discussion about the EFL and the FA. We'd, we'd be here all day, Rob, talking about the intricacies of what happened in respect to that. But the one thing that the one thing that became clear during Tracy Crouch's report and during what we were doing was that football, you know, Barry was the tip of an iceberg, and that even as we speak at this moment in time, the vast majority of football teams outside the Premier League, unless they've got an extremely rich benefactor. Are teetering on the edge. They, they are financially not in a position that if they were any other business, the banks would probably, you know, may well take may well take different steps. But they they continue in existence because uh, because of what they are and they are social entities. So if you have something which is can change, you know, is contributing significantly to the local economy. It's bringing thousands of people together in a shared collective experience. It is socially having an impact. So I could give you a lot of stories about the mental health impact of Barry Football Club disappearing and how that people who've been going there for 60, 70 years, it was their one time when they saw their friends, the one interest that they that should we say one of the main interests that they had. And it was ripped away from them. And then we developed that even further. So we know we've got these really interesting social uh, heritage sporting assets. And what do we do with them as politicians? Do we just say, do we leave it to the market and say, well, we'll leave it to the FA. The FA doesn't seem to be doing a good job in the EFL at the moment as a Delby County fan may well be able to attest to in respect to that. But I think there's a really interesting um, project, and this is where we get back to the APPG, is that how do, how do politicians work with local sporting organisations, big, small, to be engineers of social, of health, of economic change, and to make people's lives better? Now, I don't honestly think that question has been asked by many politicians uh, in Parliament uh, for a long, long time. And so that's what I want to do. And I've been, um, you know... what. Well, one of the things about when you become an MP, you, you know, people become MPs for all sorts of things, all sorts of reasons. But if I were to lose my seat in the next election, hopefully I'd be one of two things, but one of the things that I feel most proud about is I managed to persuade the government to give a million pounds to buy Lane, which is, depending on, you know, one of the oldest football stadiums in the country, if I took you there now, it's nearly as it's an emotional experience to be in the centre of it. It, it, it's, it, 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 it. It's history, heritage, community, You know, everything rolled into one, you know, and and through the efforts of myself and some people who wanted to preserve that, we've managed to do it. And so the question therefore comes is, if can politicians work with the community, with benefactors, with charities, with all sorts of other people to do really positive things with these football clubs? Because if you are getting... People at football clubs of all ages, of all sectors, of all backgrounds, of all don't no where they're from, in one place at one time. It would seem sensible that you would put frontline services there. It would seem sensible that you take the services to a captive audience. You know, if you've got, if you're as a council, you've got a local agenda about improving public health. Well, perhaps if you've got a public health, um, you know, I don't know, office or whatever it may be, however you want to however you want to uh, provide that service, why not put it in somewhere where you're hitting thousands of people and the word can be spread? You know, And it's the idea of that, that public-private partnership to literally change lives, to inspire
0: people to do things differently. It's a really interesting idea, which I've not heard before. So not, what you're suggesting is not only could football clubs sort of promote social causes, but the, the, the organisations, NHS or... Uh, Council or whatever could actually be physically linked to football football clubs in in their proximity to to
2: promote things that need to be promoted. If you take Barry Football Club prior to its demise, it sits in an area a large ethnic uh, a, a significant Muslim population uh, live very close to the ground. Who I'm very glad many of them um, you know are my close friends and and uh, and spend a lot of time uh, in that particular area. But they were not going to watch Barry Football Club. They were not part of this collective berry experience that was going on between three, four, five thousand people every other week, and, and, and much of that. Now, just think about it. If we, we, we talk about, you know, about the, uh, you know, about how communities can can thrive together, well, let's look at ways where people can have those collective experiences where where you're from and your background doesn't matter, and football stadiums are exactly the same. I'll give you another example, and this is it. The best beer gardens, and, and the pandemic has helped this, uh, and, but the best beer garden you can ever go to is a cricket club. Now, there's one thing with local cricket clubs, which they, they we could get into uh, which clubs are thriving and which are not. But you know, I what some of my local cricket clubs in Bury now, every Friday night, have 100 kids at, at cricket practice. They are, they are packed to the rafters with people who are going out for a drink and mixing who would not in any other circumstances do that. They wouldn't go to the pub and all sit there together. But these sporting organisations are providing opportunities for all sorts of, uh, should we say, political and social uh, goals that hopefully politicians share. And politicians too often don't think outside the box and a lot of politicians don't want to give away... How can I put it? They want... Uh, politics is a very top-down driven uh, organization and that you have to keep hold of all the reins of the way the money's going this that and the other whereas i think the evidence would show that if you give the money and the support and work in partnership with these types of organizations, the social capital you get back will be massive one of the things that most people would agree on in terms of football is that
0: in recent years particularly at the top level obviously it's become a lot more globalized more lucrative but for some people, it's become less in touch with the average fan and with the communities they serve, not in every case, but in some cases. And when you look at the bigger clubs, especially perhaps the ones in foreign ownership, I mean, do you feel they've drifted too far from the ideal of what used to be community-based clubs? Um, I mean, it sounds like that's not the case or it wasn't the case in Bury, but perhaps in the the bigger clubs, the big sort of corporate sort of behemoths.
2: Robert, you see, the thing is that you're tempting me to turn into that sort of grumpy old man that I can be from time to time about, you know, having a view on that football isn't like it used to be. But, you know, the Premier League, for it's all its fault, uh, generates, you know, huge amounts of income for the country and for the game. I think we've got a big discussion as to where that income should go and how it is kept within the Premier League, because the Premier League are not, I don't think they share a view and are interested, particularly in the agenda that I'm talking about. So I don't think the I think the Premier League, you know, inspires young people. It gives people the opportunity to make very good livings. You know, th- there are clearly things which are not where we need them to be. But you know, I, I don't I don't come here with an agenda of, of blaming the Premier League. I come here with an agenda of saying that you know the Manchester United Foundation, you know the Everton Foundation, they're all doing great work in their communities. So there's lots of work that's been going on from the Premier League. They could do more, but they are doing something. But the wider question is not what the Premier League is, not what you see on your TV screen. The wider question is, in terms of the aims and the goals of every council in the country, what they set out is their role in terms of what they are doing for their local populace. You know, if you go if you go around town centres, sadly, throughout the country, there's lots of people like me with, go, you know, overweight, who are not, you know, we're building up a health time bomb. You know, and no matter how much of they telling people that you shouldn't be doing this or doing that, that doesn't seem to work. We've got to think out of the box to try and address some of these things. And isn't it interesting to think that if we get young kids at a relatively early age in a place like Giggle Lay or in these sporting environments and encourage them to be part of something, is that something that is going to benefit, you know, our general health all the way down the line? Because if you get older one kid who, you know, who who perhaps may have other influences on them, but they're playing team sport, playing competitive sport, become involved in something, you know, and that it has a positive impact. You know, one person, if you can influence one person like that, you know, they get into a relationship with somebody else, and suddenly there's 10 other people who have been influenced by them, and then it's hundred, and we, we're starting to change the world bit by bit from the bottom. And these these things, I, I always think, I don't know whether you agree with this, Rob, that life really is about, although you know, we, we can all be Sort of rational, you know, Hopefully, we're all rational and we, you know, we 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 behave in rational ways. But life is about inspiration. Life is about happiness. It's about emotion, isn't it? It's about driving and, and having something within you that may, means that you want to change. And you want to be whatever it is that you want to be. And sport has a unique way of uh, opening those doors and supporting people. Um, uh, you know, and and I, I think there's a big piece to be when I said about cricket clubs. One of the things one place in the borough of berry it's not in my constituency, that I nearly weep when I see. And it's a great place. So when I say this, it's not negative. Ratcliffe Cricket Club. Ratcliffe Cricket Club, um, where the great Garfield Sobers played in very other places. If, if we went back to the 1940s and 1950s and we saw that cricket club as to what it would have been then, you had an amazing pride in the club you would have have huge crowds there you would have the community interacting with each other they can't even raise a team now the place is falling apart it's a huge massive big field a cricket field with the you know with the sort of original um with the original sort of, um, what would you say, seating and the way it was set out many, many many years ago. And I've said to the council repeatedly, why don't you go in there and work in partnership with them? Why don't you say, listen, we understand you're struggling, we'll come in there, we'll try and encourage some of the kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds to use this big sporting facility, which is right there, and they can use for free. So the town of Radcliffe, which has got thousands upon thousands of people in it, they can't raise one cricket team. You know, now there's a social question for you, Rob, to, to work out why they could do it. You know, there was a team called Bradley Mills in Huddersfield, where I'm from, who were formed about the 1850s or 1860s. Now they had they could play cricket through two world wars every other decade, but the last decade they folded. That is an interesting question. I mean, what, when when you when you approach the
0: council, what why what do they respond positively, or are you still are those talks still
2: ongoing? It's not it's not because how can we put it? They don't respond positively. It's not because they're not, they're not trying to be. It's not they're not trying to be sort of. I don't think they're trying to be negative or whatever else about it, but it's about thinking about politics in a different way, isn't it? It's thinking about the delivery of public services in a way that many public servants feel uncomfortable about. They won't control, you know, giving significant amount of monies to, I'll say, you know, the the voluntary sector, private sector, sporting sector, whatever, or investing in these things is, is not something they're comfortable with. This is one of the reasons why, and I don't, please keep me away from the leadership stuff. But the general idea about levelling up, why I think it's a very interesting concept, is that nobody really knows what levelling up means, as we know it. You know what I mean? It can mean lots of things to different people, but that's the genius of it, because it's requiring and asking your local politicians to buy into an agenda, which could be about improving SEM facilities. It could be about all sorts of things. Whatever it is you feel is levelling up in your local community and trying to gain the the finances and resources to put in place, you know, the way that that, that can have an impact on the local community. So I, I feel that we need to look outside traditional models of delivering public service, which in many ways are not working and are not having the impact, especially on people from disadvantaged backgrounds, which is what I'm interested in. Well, it'll be very
0: interesting to see how much of that comes out in the inquiry. So, what what kind of people are you speaking to? Who who are you getting to contribute to the inquiry? I assume it's a, a mixture of bigger organisations,
2: smaller ones, community groups, that kind of thing. I've got a list here of people, the great and the good, which I'm not going to read out to you, but you can imagine it's you know, the minister for this, and the minister for the, the minister for sport, and and, the, and we will all come because I think it's important that you know the people in positions of authority are. Uh, told about the vision that I'm talking about, and perhaps what other—I don't know whether the members of the, you know, of the uh, of the inquiry are going to take quite such a, um, you know, such a sort of. Um, I don't think my position is, is I, you know, I, I feel very passionately about this, but the only way you can the only the only way you can highlight it is by as you say is by inviting as many people who are working on the front line as possible, and that's what we intend to do. Um, you know, and and the. Just, I'm sorry, the, the point I missed about cricket and Radcliffe was this sorry, that if you now look, it is generally the case that cricket grounds, amateur cricket clubs in working class areas of the north are more likely to be struggling for players on, and for their future. Middle class cricket clubs or middle class areas are those which have got hundreds of kids coming and people, you know drinking wine and having a good time, you know, inject, that's a generalized view of but that's my experience of it. Why is that in your view? Well, that, that, you see, this is one of the fascinating questions I think. I, I don't think there's an easy answer to I that. Mean, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, people who are, you know, who are able, how can I put it? People who are, you know, relatively comfortable in life are generally going to be able to take advantage of opportunities which are close to them, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all encourage that. The question, the bigger question is, as I said to you about Bradley Mills and Radcliffe and all these things, why is it that those communities cannot produce a football team? There's an an area of Huddersfield called Bracken Hall. Bracken Hall is now, it's a proud area, but there's a lot of social housing, a lot of social problems there. When my dad was playing football and I was playing football in Huddersfield, they were the, the amateur football team for 30, 40, 50 years. They don't have a team anymore. Now, the young people, surely in Brackenall are screaming out for the opportunity to be able to play competitive sport and to be able to be part surely part of the football team, but they can't do it. It doesn't exist, and i i don't have a, I don't have an answer. Uh, I've got viewpoints on it. We could be here all day talking about those, but one of the, this this is one of the issues I want to raise in this inquiry, and why you know we, we talk about the uh, what do you what do you call it the you know about disadvantages and the way that you know the way that society is structured but it is quite interesting isn't it if my thesis is correct in the that work that in the north of england the cricket clubs amateur cricket clubs in working class areas are struggling more than in middle class areas when that hasn't historically been the case you know and people there's not i mean this is the other this, this this is another thing about that if you look at most i'm sorry to go back to cricket but if you look at our football in most northern towns at the age of 10 11 12 13 amateur sport is flourishing so in Huddersfield, you would get in, in the under-11s, let's just say there's, there's four divisions and maybe 40 teams who are playing out you know, junior cricket. At under-17 level, there's six. Now, you tell me the reason for that. You know, And it's the same in junior football. Amateur football in areas, when I was in Huddersfield growing up, there were 10 divisions, uh, but probably about 13 divisions playing football on a Saturday. Now there's three or four. How is that the case? What are people? What what has happened, and has what has happened negatively impacted people's life experience, chances, opportunities, and all of these things? Or is it not the role of the state to involve themselves in that, you know, or to have an opinion in respect to that? I think you're right. It's a topic
0: that we could discuss uh, for uh, m- many more minutes, if, n- if not hours. But um, we- we're going to have to end it there. I'll- James, I- I have to- I- you-, you won't like this, but I'll have to ask you one question about the state of the, the Conservative Party just before we-, w- before we go. Obviously, you've publicly backed Boris Johnson, but I know that for many Conservatives, the fear is that he is now a liability, electorally, rather than an asset. You're an MP defending a very small majority, 105, one of the smallest in the country. Do you, you believe you would not be better served in your quest to get back in in Bury North by a party leader in whom the public has more trust, or do you think do you, do you think that Boris Johnson can still be an asset for you as you try and get re-elected?
2: I, I don't know whether you I don't know whether you agree wrong with this. Uh, I think that in in our in all of our lives, we're on a journey. don't we we learn, we we, we become more experienced, perhaps even more mature in terms of the way that we look at things and the way that we behave. I became a councillor in Bury 10 years ago. And at the back of my mind when I became a councillor was that ambition thing. I want to be an MP. Do you know what I mean? And it was driving my desire to be in elected office because, you know, I had an ambition to do this and I do that. And, and thankfully, you know, over time, and I've got, you know, life has hit me in all sorts of ways you know, and being part of a community has hit me in all sorts of ways. You know, and, and so I now look at, I was lucky enough to be elected as a member of Parliament. And over the last couple of years, I've, I've really tried to ask myself, the question is, what is being an MP? What is your responsibility? What is it that it's about? What What are you here for? And I think when it comes down to, in terms of brass tacks, the people in Bury North only have one voice nationally. They don't have anything else. They're you know, for good, for bad or indifferent. They only have me. And... I want to deal with the world as it is, rather than what, um, you know, how can I put it, rather than my imposed morality or my morality dictating. If, if I feel that my view on somebody's conduct is such, that it is so reprehensible, then I would vote in a certain way. But as at this moment in time, in my area of, there's a school called Derby that needs a full rebuild, that's a 1,000 kids who need a new facility. Um, there's all sorts of other things that I need to be prioritising before before a gen, you know, not for my own benefit. I I probably, you know, with the majority I've got, I may well not be here after the next election, but I can't just allow, you know, how can I put it, a leadership election to be decided on whether I'm going to be elected or not. For me, I have had a positive relationship with the Prime Minister and government ministers for all some of the reasons I've said to you. And, And I want to, I can accept losing, Rob, what I can't accept is not giving people in my seat the best opportunity to gain at least some of the investments that's going to be trickled down from the government nationally in the next 18 months. You know, it's a funny thing. when you, when you, Sometimes when you talk about it, that, you know, I don't know which school costs, 10, 15, 20 million, whatever it is. Do, you know, do I potentially put that at risk? Even if I wanted to, do I put that at risk or do I prioritise what I think is most important in these circumstances? And so for me... In terms of what the Prime Minister is accused of doing, I think and I don't criticise anybody for any view in respect of that. But where it is, and from my view of the Prime Minister's conduct and from the explanation that he's given to me, that does not trump me uh, and do, I should not do anything, in my view, to prejudice the interests of my constituents in getting them the investment and the frontline services they deserve before they you know, have the opportunity to get rid of me. And if I don't deliver that, then they should get rid of me. I hope, you know, whether they get rid of me on the basis of the, whether the Prime Minister, you know, had, was involved in X number of parties, it's not great. You know, it's, it's not a question I, I would, you know, that that I don't ever, I didn't expect us to be here discussing this. But I can live with being not elected on the basis that I didn't deliver on a leveling up agenda or didn't try my best to get the investment. I can't you know, I'd find it difficult to, to the other way. And and to get that investment, to be able to work with people, I have to work productively with, with government. And they delivered for me, Rob. They've given me a million pounds for Dick Lane. They've given me 20 million pounds for Central Bury. And I could look, give a whole a whole host of things. So I've got a long way around of answering that question. But it does come down to what you believe your role as an MP. If I'm the moral guardian of the, of the country's conscience, then that's fine. You know what I mean? There will be times where people do things which are so outrageous or so morally um what's the word bad i'm sorry not to be very articulate about that that yeah politicians should stand up and and take a stand in respect to that but i think in terms of things that the prime minister has done and tried to do in terms of delivering his 2019 mandate and um, supporting people during the pandemic what's happening in ukraine i think these are all things you have to weigh in the balance against what he is accused of and that's where we go so yes there are a lot of people in my seat who are very upset with the prime minister I'm probably very upset with me in terms of supporting him but I can live with that if it gives me the chance to try and help them over the next couple of years James Daly, thank you very much
3: After surviving a confidence vote this week, Boris Johnson told his most senior ministers that from now on, he wanted a relentless focus on the issues that matter most to the public. Specifically, he cited the government's mission to level up and said it was morally, socially and economically the right thing to do. The comments came as MPs were due to consider Mr Johnson's flagship levelling up and regeneration bill in the Commons. With me now to discuss all this and more is Red Car MP Jacob Young. Jacob, welcome. Thank you. Before we get to Leveling Up, um, I just wanted to start with the confidence vote. I just wondered, do you believe the Prime Minister's position is tenable long term after such a large rebellion?
1: Well, I do because I think I think the you know you say large rebellion, I say overwhelming majority voting for him. You know, at least sixty sixty percent of the parliamentary party backing him uh, to continue in the job that he's doing. Um, and yeah, absolutely. He's got a mission uh, to unite and level up the country that we're about to start talking about. Um, and uh, I support him all the way in trying to achieve that.
3: I mean, were you dismayed at all to see some of your northeast colleagues like Deanna Davison voting against the prime minister?
1: Well, I think we all have to make our own decisions, don't we? Um, and I listened to my constituents who were telling me to go out and support Boris. Um, and so that's what I did yesterday. I'm sure Deanna feels as though she was acting in the best interest of her constituents. I disagree with her on that point, but, uh, you know, I think now is the time that we all move forward together.
3: I mean, obviously, we'll, have, we'll keep seeing stories about parliamentary plots and various things going forward. I mean, do you think this issue
1: has been put to bed or do you think this will come back around in some form? Well, I hope it does get put to bed because at the end of the day, the public um, need us to focus on the issues that matter to them. You know, whether that's the cost of living, whether that's uh, the energy crisis we face, whether that's the situation in eastern europe with uh, with the war in ukraine I and mean, people need us to focus on uh, important issues not to spend all of our time in parliament talking about who le- who leads the conservative party you know th- that's that's what got us in, in you know in in the t- 2019 general election uh, in the run up to that we had a broken parliament because all parliament was doing was talking about itself it wasn't talking about the issues that mattered to the country um, and so i want us to get back to focusing on what matters to everyday people
3: and um, one comment that caught my eye during this whole debate the other day was from one of your colleagues nick Fletcher, who he suggested that without boris johnson there would be no leveling up i mean surely leveling up is and should be more than a, a one-man mission
1: well i i think leveling up isn't it is more than a one-man mission you know i think uh, all of us um, there's a there's a saying you know that that all all of the government's ministers are leveling up ministers, and I, I consider myself a leveling up MP because you know it's 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 all of our mission to ensure that uh, prosperity um, is spread evenly across the United Kingdom. Um, but where I think Nick's right is that you know we've not had a prime minister I don't think um, who recognises um, the potential um, and the opportunity in a place like Teesside. Um, in in my lifetime, at least, I've I've not seen that. Whereas in Boris Johnson, we've got someone who is absolutely committed um, to helping us transform our area, and you can see that through the uh, towns funds that we're getting right across the Tees Valley twenty five million pound for Redcar, twenty five million pound for Middlesbrough, for Stockton, for Darlington. Um, you can see that through the the UK's largest freeport. Um, you could see that through the civil service jobs coming to Darlington as well. I think you know through Boris Johnson, we've got a prime minister who is properly committed to leveling up our area, um, and that's why I support him. At the end of the day, I mean, what do you
3: say to some of your critics who have claimed that the government isn't really serious on this and it's it's more about spin and slogans? I mean, it's it, you know people like the uh, Northern Powerhouse Partnership and you know the, the organization that was set up by George Osborne as well. You've got you've had various people coming out to say that without more support from the Treasury, you can't really deliver on a lot of these ambitions. I mean, what do you say to to people like that?
1: Well, I think, you know, we started out with an ambitious programme at the start of this Parliament two and a half years ago. Um, And then uh, four months into that programme, we hit a speed bump that no one was expecting um, with COVID-19. We've had uh, two years of incredible difficulty for the country. Um, and that obviously has an impact on the country 's finances as well. You know We spent four hundred and seven billion pounds on supporting lives and livelihoods throughout the pandemic. so you know we can 't ignore the fact that actually we 're in a very different financial position now than we were two and a half years ago. However, I think that you know leveling up and rebuilding the economy go hand in hand we 've got an opportunity to make sure that our economic recovery um, benefits every part of the country. And that's what I'm focused on doing in Parliament, you know, making sure that actually, as we uh, recover from COVID-19, we see um, that equality of opportunity spread right across the country.
3: And obviously, there was a lot of ambitious targets set in that white paper and the the bill that's coming before MPs this week. I mean, a lot of the missions that Michael Gove set out, you know, the ambition was to get them through by 2030. Do you think the government's still on track to deliver a lot of that?
1: Well, I think um, to some extent it's a little bit early to tell, Dan. I think you know we uh, we've we've set out a mission that that's what we want to achieve, um, and as part of the uh, as part of the Leveling Up Bill, in law it's going to be that the government has to produce a report on those missions and its ability to achieve them. Um, and so I think that you know we'll we'll see where we get to, um, but I don't think anyone can doubt our commitment to leveling up and uniting the whole country. And That's been the principal focus of Boris Johnson's government ever since he got into power. Um, and It remains our focus now. But it goes to the point that I was saying earlier on about why we why we need to stop spending all of our time talking about the leadership of the Conservative Party and actually get on with delivering what we promised the people that we would deliver, uh, which is some of the things that are in the levelling up white paper. You've kind of
3: already touched on this. I mean, you've, you've kind of described all ministers should be levelling up ministers and all MPs should be levelling up MPs. I mean, one area that people kind of sometimes criticise is, is perhaps transport. I mean, obviously, we had the integrated rail plan the other year. A lot of northern mayors were unhappy about some elements of that and where it delivers for the north. And this week, again, you, you had a bit of anger the other night um, when there was this announcement over a, a section of HS2 um, linking it up with the West Coast mainline was scrapped and that was announced by the DFT during this whole confidence vote for Boris Johnson. It was kind of branded by one Northern mayor as a bit sneaky. I mean, is the DFT on the same page as everyone else when it comes to levelling up? Because I certainly from Northern MPs sometimes that I speak to, they feel that perhaps transport is one area that is not really um, delivering in in our region.
1: Well, I think what we have to acknowledge about transport and specifically on HS2, you know, and HS2... Uh, without that spur um, and without you know the the other other elements that that uh, we lost earlier on um, in the year, um, is 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 a project that's going to cost over hundred billion pounds, um, and so you know when you're spending that level of uh, of, of money uh, on infrastructure that's going to connect the north properly, that's going to ensure that we you know that we, we have that additional capacity that we know we need on the west coast main line. Um, you know because well, so often in this argument, it gets lost around spe- uh, speed of, of the train because it's called high speed. Well, actually, you know th- this is all about freeing up capacity, ensuring that freight can move easier on the line, and, and passengers as well. Um, and so when, I, don't, I, I, I sometimes laugh when I see people saying that one hundred billion pounds um, or well over hundred billion pounds isn't enough to be spending on a project. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, people have to realise this money has to come from somewhere, it comes from taxpayers. Um and we're at, we're in a situation where um the cost of living is, is incredibly difficult. One of the biggest elements of cost of living um for families is is the amount of tax that they pay. Um and I I wanna at the end of this parliament be able to look back on it and say, actually we cut your taxes um while while I was an MP. Um and so you know, the idea that we would continue to spend more and more money on, on some of these projects, I think, you know, it's, it, we have to realise that there there isn't an endless pot of money. Just
3: just on cost of living there, I mean, obviously, you will be getting a full mailbag about, you know, various residents struggling to, to pay the bills at the moment. Do you think the government has gone far enough
1: in, in some of the measures that they've announced? I think they have, um, you know, and I, th- I think what, what we need to do is... Um, we need, we need to take it step, step by step, um, and that's what, that's the approach that Rishi um, has, has taken so far, and I think that it's the right approach. You know that, um, because it, the reality is, uh, if you pump too much money into the system, if you, you know and if, if you try and ease pressures somewhere, you create pressures in a new place as well. What we don't want to see is um, Rishi you know pumping so much money into the system that inflation goes even higher and then bills come, become even higher, and then the cost of living pressures stay the same for families up and down the country. Um, we, need to, we need to take a balanced approach and target our help where we can, um, and I think that that's what the government's done so far. Um, but there's obviously more steps that we need to take. You know, there's, there's the three biggest areas um, of, of any family's cost of living uh, is primarily housing, um, then it's energy, uh, and then it's their taxation, Um, And so what we're trying to do is, through the Leveling Up um, and Regeneration bill, tackle some of those inbuilt costs in housing. And we've also got a private rented sector bill coming forward as well and a social housing bill coming forward um, to help us do that. And then within um, energy, uh, tackle some of those uh, costs in energy that that exist because we've got an outdated energy system. And that's the purpose of bringing forward the energy security bill. And then on taxation, we've set out a plan already of how we want to cut taxes by the end of this Parliament. Um, I want to see us try and supercharge that to cut taxes sooner, to ease the cost of living on, on families up and down the country. So I think, yes, we're doing the right thing so far. We've got more to do, but we have to take it each step at a time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify.